Good morning. I'm Craig Shesky, Chief Financial Officer of The Metals Company. Uh, at TMC, uh, which trades on the NASDAQ, we are developing the world's largest estimated undeveloped source of battery metals. And in fact, it was ranked by Mining.com last year as the number one and number two largest nickel projects in the world. But it's a different type of resource. It's 1.6 billion tons of these polymetallic nodules, which sit unattached on top of the seafloor in the clarion Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. So a lot of nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese, very critical for the clean energy transition. And actually, this is an industry that would have gotten started back in the 1970s. There were companies like BP, Shell, Lockheed, Sumitomo, uh, Rio Tinto that were collecting thousands of tons of these nodules, except it wasn't a regulatory environment. And that's the progress that's been made over the last 50 years. And in fact, TMC just successfully collected 3,000 tons of these nodules with our partner, Ulsees, in the fourth quarter of 2022. So we're progressing it uh, very quickly, and it's really good to speak with you today and tell you more about it. Greg, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, so, yes, I mean, many, many things uh, going on, lots of moving parts in the company, lots of development since we spoke uh, with the company last. Um, the the biggest news is, as you say, that uh, that ocean testing program, the, 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 the collection program that you, you did, um, 3,000 tonnes from the deep ocean, uh, let's start there and tell me, could you just tell me a little bit more about that process um, and, and how that has evolved and kind of what's led on from that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've been in this area of the Pacific uh, for some time. It's been well studied, really going back to the 1960s. Um, TMC is now at the stage where we're getting ready to make our application to the regulator, the International Seabed Authority, to go from exploration stage to exploitation stage to affect effectively start commercial production. To do that, there are some prerequisites. First of all, you need many years of environmental baseline data. And we've done uh, roughly 18 campaigns focused on that environmental data and resource definition. And one of the most important campaigns that we did was a multi-month with hundreds of people at sea over the second half of 2022 to collect nodules. And it's important for two reasons. One, you want to be able to show that you uh, are able commercially to collect what you need to collect. And we were successful in doing that with our team uh, at Alsis. And this is what the drill ship looks like. It's a Samsung 10,000 vessel. And here in the middle of the screen, you can see uh, the collector vehicle. So it was very important to first show that you can collect nodules at commercial scale. And we did that with a sustained production rate of 86 tons per hour. Now, we'll go from 86 tons per hour to 200 tons per hour with this sold vessel, we're going to make some modifications, a wider diameter, a wider pipe. Uh, we're going to add additional collector heads to this robot. Um, but that's sort of the commercial proof of concept. The other thing that was very important about this collector test was that there was another vessel trailing behind it. And this other vessel had research scientists on it collecting data from ROVs and AUVs underwater, observing this collector test and looking at what the environmental impacts would be and helping us come up with a plan to mitigate and manage those environmental impacts when we're in production. So all of that data has just now in the last week been shared with the regulator. And that's going to be one of the key elements of our environmental impact statement, which is one part of our application to the regulator that would allow us to begin work. And very quickly, this is actually what the pile of 3,000 tons of nodules looks like in the hold in the hidden gem vessel. So it's just the start. 
but it's been very helpful to show that uh, we can do this and we think we can do it commercially. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> when you were running the test, what did you learn about um, operating costs and and availability? Yeah, as we were doing the test, um, we learned that the system performed generally within expectations and actually exceeded expectations in some areas. The sustained production rate, it's not something that we were running it for many days at a time. We were allowed to really operate within um, guardrails that the regular la laid out and 3000 tons of nodules is what we were allowed to collect. So we could have run it faster, we could have run it longer, uh, but getting to that 86 tons per hour was the threshold where both we and all seeds considered, okay, this can be done commercially. Now, some of the steps that will uh, be done over the next 18 months plus to modify the vessel and modify the collector, they're not anything that I would describe as major engineering hurdles. Other things that will cost money and you know, TMZ will be funding part of the CapEx necessary to make those modifications, but you're talking about you know, our initial estimate, 55 million of upfront, upfront CapEx on those modifications for TMC. So in the context of how large this resource is, uh, something we think is pretty well in hand. Forgive me for um, the, my slowness, but um, when you talk about kind of modifying the, the the collection vessels to the tune of $55 million, that's not within the context of a kind of a final feasibility number, is it? Um, or, or is it? No. So it's it, look, it's something that we've um, estimated right now uh, in terms of that's what it's going to cost. But there is going to be the next stage of data on feasibility work. We're working on that. We're also trying to get to our final terms with our partner ALSEs on how much we will be paying them per ton of collection in the initial system. So we came out, for example, with ALSEs in March of 2022 and laid out that their initial estimate was 150 euro per ton to collect the nodules and then get them to shore. So to collect them, but also then uh, have bulk ship, uh, shipment vessels take them to shore, that would have been 150 per ton euro and then uh, they estimate you would be able to reduce that by 20% or more. So we're going to work out those final uh, elements of that commercial contract. Um, so stay tuned on that over the next few months. Okay, good. And um, just to put that in context, I, when I last spoke uh, with um, the company, I think it was with Gerard and with Alistair, the CDO, um, about a year ago, uh, you were talking of a kind of a value per ton of around uh, $800 dollars per ton. Is that still more or less where prices are? It is. And that's the ballpark of where it would be if you're taking it further uh, in making a sort of more refined product, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, copper cathode. We're thinking through our options of potentially selling an intermediate product, a nickel, copper, cobalt alloy or mat, and then a manganese silicate product. So I'll show you uh, very quickly what you know the uh, onshore processing uh, looks like. And we actually demonstrated our ability to convert these nodules already to nickel, copper, cobalt, alloy, and mat, plus manganese silicate uh, at some of these facilities in Sunbury, Ontario. Um, now, this this isn't with um, this isn't with Jindal, because I'm, I, a year ago, there was kind of a lot of talk about Jindal in India. Yeah, this is not with Jindal in India. This is, uh, we still have a good relationship with Epsilon Carbon and that team in India. Um, but what we were exploring in March of last year with them was the creation of a new processing facility. And that would have been many hundreds of millions of uh, CapEx. And, you know, there's always risk when you're building something from scratch. Now that we showed that we could turn this flow sheet into reality, we actually were very excited to report that we now have an MOU with PAMCO in Japan. And there is an existing RKEF line in Japan that can take everything that we would produce from our initial smaller scale production, what we call Project Zero. They can take it all and potentially then some. 
So this is a great turnkey solution where on TMC's own account, there's not going to be any CapEx for the onshore processing. And even for PMCO, there's minimal modifications expected. Um, so when we set $800 a ton or so of revenue, um, it may be lower than that if we decide we're not going to take this all the way to refined products because we haven't talking to customers who are interested in taking that, for example, nickel, copper, cobalt, matte product because certain automakers uh, are keen to do the final refining themselves to their own specifications. So, you know, the revenue will move around, but if we skip the refining step, of course, that's going to be improved ROE and IRR for TMC shareholders. And again, we are talking somewhere in the 500 to 1,000 per total range on revenue, depending on where we stop uh, in the value chain versus, you know, much, much lower than that to actually collect and process the nodules. So we haven't laid out the economics yet for Project Zero, but we are very confident there's going to be a very healthy EBIT margin left over. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and so just um, just for my benefit, the RK in the EF, uh, the, the RK is presumably, sort of the EF is electric furnace. What's the RK? Rotary kiln. So it's rotary, rotary kiln. kiln with an electric arc furnace. Sorry, you were just, I interrupted. You were telling me about the um, the, the work you're doing in Sudbury, Ontario, um, which was has proven part of the process. Could you just kind of refresh, remind me what you were um, about to say there? Yes, absolutely. So we developed a flow sheet uh, along with Canadian engineering firm Hatch to process these nodules, producing nearly zero solid waste and absolutely no tailings. So it's very rare to find a very large, high-grade nickel deposit where you're not talking about, you know, many millions of metric tons of solid waste and a tangling issue where you have to hold it back behind a dam, or in the case of Indonesia, where most of the nickel growth would otherwise come from. First of all, you have to raise a rainforest to get the low-quality laterite underneath that rainforest, and then you have this problem where you have to store tailings near local communities, but it's a seismic area and you can't put it behind a dam. You've seen what can happen with tailings dams in Brazil. You can't even build a dam within Indonesia without fear of it potentially rupturing due to that seismic activity. So you have to find somewhere else to put that waste. The flow sheet that we developed doesn't have to deal with that at all, given that the nodules don't have uh, high levels of toxic elements like arsenic, like mercury. So after developing that flow sheet, we then took it upon ourselves to say, okay, let's prove that this can actually be done. So we use some uh, facilities within Pennsylvania and then uh, subsequently Ontario to convert these nodules into uh, what ultimately ended up being 80 tons of this intermediate material, a nickel, copper, cobalt alloy, then converted to a mat, and then a manganese silicate product that goes directly into blast furnace steel making. And we're very excited about that product too. It would represent nearly 30% of our future revenue. Um, but it was the fourth quarter of 2021 that we wrapped up that pilot processing uh, trial in uh, Ontario, and we showed that we could do it. So now the next step is how do we go from pilot stage to you know commercially viable stage and working with a partner like PAMCO that already has a dedicated RKDF line, that's gonna make that flow sheet a reality. Um, <clears throat> what's, what's the offtake capacity of PAMCO? I mean, are you talking that on project zero, uh, as you as you um, described it, is is that one hundred percent? I mean, would you just kind of do the first? Is it one hundred percent, or is, is it likely to be one of several partners? It would be one of several partners. Uh, with Pamco, they're going to be paid a tolling fee for us to use that facility, and then TMC would continue to own the nodule and the material from you know, picking it up off of the seafloor, uh, and then the moment that it actually goes into battery precursors. So we're talking with uh, various potential optake partners. Um, and you know, we, we've been talking to a lot of partners for a long time, 
and um, we're very excited to um, you know continue that work and not just for the nickel and the copper and the cobalt but uh, there's a lot of interest in that manganese product uh, in Asia and elsewhere uh, given how um, you know the, the value and use compared to traditional manganese sources is much higher there's lower carbon um, so it's a really interesting product I would expect we will have more to report on that it's just uh, not something we can always say with certainty when an offtake is going to come we already do have an offtake with Glencore for half of the nickel and half of the copper within our nori area now there's a bit of a um, discussion around what happens if that material is not produced at a tmc owned facility might that material be available for other partners that's a discussion as well um, but it would be our view to use pamco for processing and then continue discussions with automakers, battery makers, other strategics who would like to use that. Good. Um, just coming back to the um, the environmental conversation about uh, not having tailings dams, um, in, a, in a sense, there is a um, there is an element of marine disposal here. I mean, it's a marine product um, with the with the kind of the reinjected plume, whatever it is, 1.2 kilometers under um, under the surface of the ocean. Um, obviously, you've run the pilot test. Did that raise any concerns? Did that behave as you were expecting? Uh, and I and I see, of course, on that that you've submitted your um, your environmental report recently. So last week, I think it was. So um, can you just talk to me a bit about that um, submarine recirculation of the of the plume? No, absolutely. Uh, and really, yes, there are two plumes. You mentioned the midwater plume, where you are uh, upon getting the nodule of the riser pipe, then disposing a mix really of seawater and uh, sediment, sand and mud. So I do think there is, um, you know, oftentimes writing on this issue saying that we would be disposing toxic elements into the ocean. It's really putting back in a very, very, very diluted mix of sand and mud with seawater. And the question was at what depth should we re-inject that? And, you know, somewhere between 1,200, 1,500 meters, uh, we're going to let the size drive where that should be deposited but certainly much, much deeper than where a lot of the big complex uh, biodiversity in the ocean would be. Um, MIT actually did a study uh, on this on the previous collector test and has produced some models on this front. And this was published in Science Advances Magazine in September of 2022. They found that the midwater plume uh, returns to normal background levels very, very quickly after you know that uh, mix of sediment and water is pumped back. Um, and importantly, the C4 plume which is effectively you're driving this collector on the seafloor, picking up these rocks, and it kicks up a bit, a bit of dust. There has been speculation, and not based on any field data, but just pure speculation, that that plume could travel for thousands of miles off of the seafloor. The reality observed by TMC in our own test in the fourth quarter, as well as published by MIT and the Scripps Ocean Institute, is that that plume generally rises one to two meters above the seafloor. So over 92 to 98% of the sediment only rises a meter or two above the seafloor and falls back down. And most of it settles within one day, within the test area. So the biggest pushback against this in terms of what are the absolute environmental impacts, we think has been pretty well uh, proven to be you know, uh, overblown. And it's something that we can and will manage. And also, as well in operations, we will be showing all of the data from our operations in a digital twin. So regulators, stakeholders will be able to log on and say, okay, what's TMC up to? What are their operating parameters? Where are they? What does the plume look like? All of that will be observable. So the biggest potential impact we feel very good is well in hand. And our observed um, trial from the fourth quarter of last year 
I really underscored what we already knew, that the plume is something that can be managed. So did you say that you had you were going to live stream your mining operation? I mean, is that what it is? Are we into kind of the, the, the time of reality mining? Look, I wouldn't say it would be a live stream, but all of the data in terms of where is the plume, you know, what are oxidization levels, um, all of the metrics that will be thresholds established by this regulator, you will be able to see where TMC is stacking up against those environmental thresholds in real time. So it's not something that's a requirement, but we think it's going to set us a new standard of transparency in the mining industry. You'll be getting eyes and ears on our operations in real time. If conditions change, we can change with it. So I do think often there is a view from the other side that is, we don't know enough, we don't know enough, but we know enough not to ever do this. And it's a little bit disingenuous to say, look, let's let the data uh, paint the right picture because we need so much more metal supply to decarbonize. And if it's not coming from here, where will it come from? And let's stack up what those relative impacts are. And in fact, you know, we engage with benchmark minerals uh, to produce a life cycle analysis of getting nickel and cobalt and copper from these nodules versus land-based sources. And the takeaway was quite staggering that in every impact category measured for nickel, for example, and measuring water impacts, acid, um, carbon impacts, nickel from these nodules substantially reduces impacts of all known land-based sources. So we just want the science to do the talking. And again, as we're in operations, you will see what those operations look like and how we stack up against the environmental threshold. So our argument is why not start small and show that this can be done right. I, I totally agree with you. And I would, in an ideal world, love most conversations to be uh, science-driven. But I think you can point to many examples, and probably none better than the nuclear industry, which has got a lot of data on safety and um, energy density. And the, 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 the rationale for the for uh, nuclear power generation is, is very clear when it's science-driven and it's data-driven. And yet it's, it's fighting kind of an emotional response to it the kind of the european or the western world seems to have kind of gone against nuclear because of chernobyl because of whatever uh fear there may be out there it's almost kind of an irrational uh bias that's lodged where do you feel that the conversation has got to globally or just within the within the area that you're interacting with about um deep sea mining because again it's it's, it's, it would be lovely if things were data-driven, but it's not always the case. No, it's a very good point. It is a very emotional issue. And frankly, when I first heard about deep sea mining, uh, I had an emotional reaction that suggested my mental picture of what mining looks like underwater. And I think as more people become aware of what this is and what this isn't, um, you know, they will come along with it. But that will take time. Um, I think what's important to highlight, however, is that this is not just going to be an issue decided by knee-jerk popular opinion. This is an issue being decided by 167 member states plus the European Union within the International Seabed Authority. And those member states are, you know, well versed on all the data that is coming out and recognizing that the International Seabed Authority is not being asked, should this happen or shouldn't it? That die was cast many decades ago. When the ISA was formed, there were two deliverables. There was first an exploration regime, which was delivered to allow people to explore for uh, and you know, determine the resource within particular patches of the clearing Clipperton zone. And there was also the commitment to deliver an exploitation regime that would allow commercial production to go ahead. Now, the ISA was targeting July of this year to deliver that code. But what they, uh, as they wrapped up their March meeting very recently, what became clear is that even if that code is not wrapped up uh, in July of this year, 
that they will begin accepting applications, that they do have a mandate to consider deep sea mining applications after that point. Now at TMC, we are uh, putting out as much data as possible and showing uh, how responsibly these nodules can be collected. We don't want to be in a situation where we apply to begin work while the final mining code is still being worked out. We reserve our rights to do that. If it drags on and on, we may have to go down that route. But I think what most countries are recognizing is that they have a legal obligation to deliver these final rules. And then it doesn't mean that it'll just be a rubber stamp and we'll go ahead. They will judge our project on its merits. Um, but it's just important to clarify that there is a very loud opposition to this. There are certain countries who have come out and drawn a line in the sand saying we don't support it. In fact, it's roughly a dozen out of 167 countries. And that dozen was still in Jamaica at the ISA meetings over the course of March working on that final code. So this isn't a situation where somebody says, I don't think we should do it. And then they just stop doing work. They do still have an obligation to deliver that legal regime. So that will come first. And then as we get our application to begin work, you know, I think you'll still have many years to win over some people, but we don't have to win over everybody. We need our commercial contract. And then from there, we'll be able to show the world just how this can be done right. Do they have a power of veto that's with these 12 countries that are out of the 120, uh, 167, or, or is it a majority vote? They have no veto. And it's not even a vote. Most of the topics within the ISA over time have been reached through consensus. So it's a very, you know, we're not used to consensus building, especially when you have 167 countries plus the EU. It seems like that's a lot of cats to herd. But they do have a great track record of saying, okay, this is where the momentum is heading and everybody comes on board. Um, so there is a process. If any one country, for example, makes a formal objection, there is a well laid out conciliation process and how you get from that stage to consensus. Um, so we think, you know, there is, you know, backup plans and off roads where you may have to go to uh, arbitration on certain elements. And that's occurred in the past too and has led to, I think, pretty good outcomes. So there is sort of a lot of backup plans if necessary, but so far the ISA has been very good about showing that they can get what they need to deliver through consensus. Good, good, good. So is, does, does that mean that uh, July of this year is a kind of a, uh, a potentially a de-risking milestone for you uh, or, or, or is it unlikely to occur in July? Well, I think we already had a good uh, signpost on where this is heading uh, last Friday. There's an article from Reuters noting that the ISA will begin considering applications after July. Uh, that was in part driven by the action of our sponsoring state, the Republic of Nauru, back in July of 2021, notifying the ISA, as was their legal sovereign right, that they would be ready to submit an application uh, after two years from that point forward. So that's what started the clock running on July. Now, there has been a strong push by uh, certain NGOs and some of their member states who are sympathetic to them to say, don't worry about that legal right. Don't worry about Nauru's sovereign right on this issue. Don't start taking applications yet. And the ISA considered that and said, no, we're going to respect the rule of law. We're going to respect uh, the ISA implementation agreement. We're going to respect the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. And in saying that and noting that they would begin accepting applications, it drew a line in the sand of, okay, we have an obligation to deliver this code and we're not going to be distracted by people trying to muck it up at the last minute. Now, after July occurs, if they don't have the final mining code in place, well, there's going to be another meeting scheduled for October and November. So they'll continue work on that finalization. At the same time, TMC will be continuing to analyze all of this data, 200 terabytes or more of data that we collected 
during that uh, test in the fourth quarter of last year. All of that goes into our environmental impact statement. It goes into making a successful application to the ISA for our commercial contract. So we'll be working on that in a parallel path. And then when that application is ready, we'll see what state the rules are in. We would have the legal right at that time to apply using the draft rules that already exist. And those draft rules actually are in very good shape too. So we have two possible paths forward, but the most desired path is that the ISA sticks on their timeline and delivers a final mining code. Where does the feasibility study fit in those in, in, in the timeline as well? Because let's let's say you can get the environmental impact assessment um, ready by, if I hear it right, uh, um, the beginning of next year. Is that, is that kind of H1? Is that the plan? Uh, plans by the end of this year. And look, there are a lot of elements to this application. A TMC is a relatively small company, but we have many hundreds of people working on the project. We have our partners at Allseas, uh, for example. Um, we're now announced that we're bringing in potential new partners on shore. One of the most important partners that we announced uh, is working on this project is Bechtel. And this kind of lays out the various elements of our application. And you'll see there is the environmental impact statement here in the middle represents a big chunk because that's a lot of man hours and, and female hours that go into that too. But you'll notice that Bechtel is helping us on the feasibility study. So the feasibility work and some of the project definition work, we uh, hire Bechtel to help us with that. And all of that is a prerequisite for finalizing this application. So everything that you see on this page, we're working on a timeline to finish it by the end of this year. Great. Thank you. Um, finances. I've um I had a quick look, and you've got uh, $46 million in cash. You've just um, announced a, uh, a convertible with all seeds, which has got a 15-month run. Is that right? Or kind of a, uh, was it an 18-month run? It was 15 months, yeah. It was an unsecured uh, credit facility. Could you just talk me through the, the, the rationale behind getting that and, and the, versus using your cash uh, pile? And, um, you know, what, were the, what was the incentive uh, for you guys to to push to get that convertible, yeah, definitely. Well, look, we said in our last uh, quarterly call that you know somewhere between 100 and 150 million of additional cash will be required to get us into production. In the context of what is by far the world's largest undeveloped nickel project, that's a pretty small amount. But we look at our market cap, and it's disappointingly low. So what we don't want to do is fund that through the issuance of equity at the holding company. So we've been taking steps to avoid that and uh, increase our financial flexibility without diluting our TMC shareholders. So for example, we put in place a $30 million at the market equity facility in December. That remains undrawn. And I think you'll see when we report again for Q1 in May, that will still be undrawn. So we put that in place for flexibility and we've been good about not using that. We also did a transaction with low carbon royalties uh, where we would pay a relatively small royalty and an option to buy back some of that royalty in exchange for a 35% stake in that company directly and $5 million. It was a much less dilutive way to raise financing. It's not enough to get us into production, but it's an example of the playbook that we're deploying to raise funds using the great asset value within our Nori chunk. Um, finally, we did have that $25 million credit facility with all C's. Uh, again, that's a relatively short-term facility. But it avoids us having to go out and you know raise equity in the short term. So we are continuing to have discussions with a lot of different players at the asset level, ways that they might be able to earn their way into a chunk of uh, you know this project, knowing that we've already spent over three hundred million dollars just on Nori Area D alone, and that represents just twenty two percent of our resource. 
And if you're talking about what is the net present value of that resource at current metal prices, it's in excess of $13 billion. So we're at the stage now where even though it's taking a little longer to get some uh, you know, people to buy into the story at the TMC old code level, people who are in the resource space are seeing this as an opportunity to earn their way into an asset that's going to be the first doing this commercially. And you've seen a lot of other actions from strategics in the offshore oil and gas space, for example, Transocean uh, invested cash as well as a drill ship uh, to the Belgian contractor GSR. So, you know, people are voting with their feet and, you know, whether it's Transocean, whether it's China focusing more on deep sea nodule collection, which they announced last month, Norway is getting into deep sea mining. Japan will be doing rare earths uh, close to their exclusive economic zone. This is something where, you know, people that have a lot of capital have been de devoting it to this space recently. And we want to do everything we can to raise the cash needed to get into production at the asset level, as opposed to diluting equity holders. Yeah, great. So the 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 the, the plan is that you'd be in a better financial position uh, in um, in just over a year's time, in kind of in May 2024, um, so that you'll be able to repay that loan uh, or the capital portion of it from Treasury, or or we don't draw on it. You know, we have a decent cash runway too. We reported nearly 47 million of cash as at the end of December. So our goal is to continue working on these potential transactions and never have to use that facility. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, what do, in terms of the news flow between now and the end of the year? Now, obviously, at the end of the year, it's the biggie because you've got you've got that um, uh, that page that you showed me, which is kind of the environmental impact assessment and the application process. You know, that, that's that's the goal for the end of the year. Um, how are you going to be reporting uh, up until then? You know, we've got another nine months left. I think you're going to see a increasing and pretty fast cadence of science coming out. And as all of the analysis from um, all of these researchers at sea, and we've had a lot of great partners uh, helping us you know, take this forward, you're going to see a lot of that information come out in studies, some of it going through peer review, and that's going to be a pretty fast clip of information. Uh, also, yes, I think you're going to see continued progress from the ISA. Uh, we had a you know pretty good outcome for March, and they have a lot more work to do intersessionally. But they will meeting will be meeting again in July, and then likely again in October and November. Um, so that regulatory piece is, of course, going to be critical. Between now and then, what are things that could be catalyst for us? Well, um, obviously, we've talked about potential asset level financing transaction. Something on that front, we think, would be a major needle mover in that it would de-risk one of the main question marks people still have. We've already shown that there's minimal resource risk. We've shown now that the technology to collect and then process these nodules has been significantly de-risked. Now you're really left to capital risk and regulatory risk. And I think both of those can be answered in 2023. So keep an eye out for new partners coming into the space. Keep an eye out for new potential sources of funding and keep an eye out for regulatory progress. And all of it's pointing to a very good year for TMC. Yeah, as you were, um, I was uh, while you were starting to, to, on that answer, I was thinking about what are the risks? What are the risks? You know, what are the what are the, the greatest risks? And it's you you answered it very nicely at the end, which is the capital and the and the regulatory, which for me translates into timelines. You know, it's 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 a function of um, when do you have the money and when can you um, deploy the capital? Yeah. Well, I would just want to. I mean. Uh, there was the writer Eric Clipton from the New York Times, who's been following the space for a while. He wrote a front page article uh, about TMC and the ISA um, going back to August of last year. He noted that coming out of the March ISA meeting, to him, it's a question of when as opposed to if. 
that this will go forward. And as we're getting in that stage of it's about when, not if, it behooves us to say, what can we do to bolster our balance sheet, to increase financial flexibility, make sure that you know we're going to be able to weather any storm, even if you're talking about a couple months of delay. And we have the financial tools now to do that. So I think we're at the stage where it seems pretty clear this is a major transformational asset. It's the largest and second largest nickel project in the world, low cost, high grade. This is going to happen. And now it's just a question of how do we increase awareness and you know, interviews like this, it's very important for us to make sure that people are aware that this is out there. Because still, many of the conversations we have, it's not that people necessarily have a negative reaction to what we're doing. People are impressed by the progress. They just have to get used to knowing that it's out there. There are a lot of investors who have still uh, never heard of this. So we will be on a campaign with a lot of conferences and events and interviews to make sure that nobody misses this big opportunity. Craig, thank you very much. It's been um, uh, it, it's it's been a, it's been too long. You know, I, I I last spoke to the company a year ago, and you know, out of sight, out of mind to a degree. Um, it's good to get the update, and um, thank you very much for the time, and good luck with the year ahead. Much appreciated, Merlin. Thank you.